Welcome to the Thinking Things Through podcast. My name is Ron Chung, and today's topic is In the Footsteps of Moses. But really, it's a description of not just my visit to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but what it made me think about as I thought things through. I began to ask questions about what I call CKB, Claims, Knowledge and Beliefs. You see, when we think about things, we adopt claims. Claims about truth, claims about what really happened, they inform our knowledge. The knowledge that we have shapes our beliefs, and the beliefs that we adopt influence what we think. As a Christian growing up in a Muslim country in Malaysia, I've always wondered about the relationship between the world's two biggest religions, Christianity and Islam. I asked three questions. What makes someone a Christian and another a Muslim? Would I have grown up a Muslim if I were born to Muslim parents? And finally, could I one day, as a Christian, visit the spiritual home of Islam, Saudi Arabia? The answer to the third question came about in 2017 when an opportunity arose for me to visit the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia announced that it was experimenting with inviting non-Muslim visitors to explore the country, not done before. However, the Kingdom is a modern nation supported by delicate power-sharing agreement between religion and politics, with a final authority based on tribal alliances. Eventually, the uh, visas were rejected, and ultimately, I did not uh, get to go there until year 2022. Many obstacles persisted from reversals of the invitation to closures of important sites or renovation, and finally, it happened. Three things surprisingly made it easier for me to go there and um, gave me the impetus to want to make this trip at this time. Number one, the opening of Tabuk, the location of the Moses Trail, according to the Islamic tradition, near the Red Sea. The opening of Hegra or Madain Saleh, the southern part of the Nabataean civilization, and Al-Madinah itself, the final resting place of the Prophet Muhammad. So I'm glad my trip was delayed by almost five years, as all three sites were not open then. Now, the Moses Trail by Muslims in the KSA did not come cheap. It was pretty expensive, but finally a friend offered to sponsor the trip with the sole condition that I write a photo book about my observations, and this is what um, I'll be doing. Now, from the geohistorical point of view, there are several topics that I can talk about, but today I'm just going to focus on the issue of Moses. I'm going to mention four places, four locations that I visited. One is called Al-Bad, which is a town in the region of Midian. The second one is Wadi Taib al-Islam, or they call it Moses' landing spot. The third place is Magna, um, referring to the springs of Moses. And the fourth is Jabal Makla, or Mount Sinai and the Golden Calf site, according to the Arabians. Now, all four places that we can think of, they have their Jewish and Christian analogs, mostly in what we now call modern Egypt. So here we have two traditions, the Judeo-Christian and the Muslim tradition. 
having a different interpretation from the same book, from the Bible itself. How is this possible? Why did it come about? And what can we learn from this? So my Toyota Land Cruiser bumped along an unpaved road in the province of Tabuk until we reached the shores of the Red Sea. So let's talk about Albat first. Modern Albat um, is in biblical Midian, according to the traditions and interpretations of the Muslims, and especially in Saudi Arabia. Here, we find that this place um, has a long history. Going back to the 2nd century BC, the Nabataeans were there. There's a necropolis of Mugai Shaub, where the Nabataean people would leave the dead bodies, and uh, that's a bit of like the tomb. And there, approximately 16 to 13 centuries BC, according to the best archaeological guesses, lived a Midian priest called Jethro. In the Bible, Jethro became Moses' father-in-law. Now, was this the actual site of Midian? We'll see. We don't know for sure. And that's the nature of archaeology. You find circumstantial evidence, you find some physical evidence, and you make your best guesses. And you keep on improving as time will keep telling you whether your instincts are correct and some things will be verified, some not yet, some not possible. This was where Moses is said to have lived before he became a prophet of God. Now, Muslim geographers call this region the Well of Moses. And by the 16th century, water pits were built in the region. So this is the first place I went to visit. Surprised me because I didn't even know it existed. And for the longest time, people could not go there. It was closed. It's quite near the border to Jordan. So you can see politically, it's a bit sensitive. The second place I visited was Wadi Taib Islam or Moses Landing Spot. Now, this may be the very spot that Moses landed. Historically, we have no idea for sure. But it's interesting that according to the Arabian and Muslim interpretation, this was where he landed, having escaped from the Egyptian armies and having crossed the Red Sea. Now, according to the Bible, after Moses' brother Aaron helped the exiles from Egypt make a golden calf to worship, Moses came down Mount Sinai, was really upset, and he melted the golden calf, ground it into powder, he sprinkled the gold remains into the nearby stream that flowed down from Mount Sinai and forced the golden calf worshippers to drink from the polluted water. Now here we actually saw a stream coming down through a, um, the mountains and it went all the way to the Red Sea. Geographically, is it possible? Absolutely. Is it likely? We don't know for sure. Uh, more work will be done over the next coming years and we will have an idea whether there's a viable alternative interpretation. The third place I visited was a place called Magna, Springs of Moses. From the Gulf of Aqaba, we drove to the village of Magna where locals have long identified a natural spring as one of the 12 springs of Moses mentioned in the Bible. So if you look at the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 15, verse 27, it states that Moses led his people to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. I was brought to a location where the locals have always believed this to be the springs of Moses. It's a natural spring uh, popping up from the ground, and they would drink from it. This is another example of how modern archaeology and later on science and technology can give us more verifiable evidence of what we're looking for. Now, the fourth place I visited is called Jabal Makla, or 
Mount Sinai. And there, the government also identified it as the Golden Calf Site. Now, understand this. All four places that I visited in Saudi Arabia have their own analogues in Egypt. In any case, here at Jabal Makla, we drove to the granite mountains of the Jabal Al-Laws towards the Makla mountain itself, which some scholars argue is the real Mount Sinai with its distinctive so-called burnt top. It's actually black rock. It's not really burnt as such. There, according to this view and this interpretation, Moses received the Ten Commandments. Uh, read Exodus chapter 19, verses, uh, verse 18, and Galatians 4.25. The idea of these locations, these four locations, and visiting these places, um, many of them have not been places where either Jewish or Christian scholars have visited for various reasons. It's worth considering. But what's more important for me is not so much whether these are the actual locations and the others are not, but the question of why Muslim and Christian interpretations of Moses' trail seem so different. How do we square the circle? Who is right? Now, no one can reconstruct the deep past. This new knowledge shows that interpretations are not plain and simple. Some people think, I take the Bible, I'll read it, and lo and behold, I know exactly where things are geohistorically. That's not the case. And that's why after over 2,000 years, there are still active Bible study research programs all over the world because there's so much we do not know, so much we assume, and so much we have to unlearn. Now, they always depend on new knowledge, this sort of biblical research. And knowledge, of course, um, gives us the word science, scientia. For example, uh, the history of science, technology, and medicine have dramatically revised our views of God's creation. Advances in science and technology are taking place at a rapid pace. For example, today, um, we can use Zoom technology to meet each other in real time across the globe. All these sort of developments are very exciting for uh, people like me and in my work, my research, because it enables us to keep uh, making the margins of error smaller and smaller as we learn to find out what is true and what is unlikely to be true. So what's the takeaway for this? Well, the takeaway is that the signs of each generation in each location influence how people judge the truth. We judge the reality of truth by the knowledge we have at the time that we have it. Thus, from what we think, we perceive, conceive, affirm, apprehend, comprehend, and finally believe. The succession of cognitive facilities relies on our personal utilization of cognitive faculties. Now, what I'm saying is, when you think you believe something, your belief is very much based on what you accept as knowledge. And your knowledge is largely based on the claims that you hear. Earlier on, I talked about uh, CKB, claims, knowledge and belief, and we'll, we'll close with this. Now, in the sciences, what is accepted as true is often rendered untrue when new insights lead to fresh explanations of our perceptions. In theology, especially the ones that rely on ancient textual authorities like the Bible, the challenge is one of humility, the moral courage to admit the limitations of knowledge based on the interpretation of available data. Now, this is not to say that somehow science is more humble than theology. That's not true at all, but that both of them depend on interpretations. Now, built into the sciences is a universal punishment 
for anyone who ignores new evidence that showed that the old assumptions are wrong. Theology, not so easy, partly because it's fragmented. Um, different places will have different authorities. So the issue of authority becomes one that is very challenging for learning about things of God. What we can say is that the interpretation of the Bible is based on knowledge. So here's a conclusion, and we come to CKB. We come to claims, we come to knowledge, and we come to beliefs. In this podcast about Moses' trail in Saudi Arabia, the more, more important to think about is how did Jews and Christians interpret this Bible's description of Moses' home in Midian and his journey through the Sinai differently from Muslims, even though they use the same names? In my exploration and investigation into the various interpretations of the Bible, it reminds me that, number one, claims to ultimate truth must be scrutinized for its veracity. It is okay to ask, how do you know? Number two, knowledge as authority should always be checked for its truth. It's okay to ask questions. How do we know this to be true? And finally, as far as beliefs about God is concerned, they must be open to revision when the basis for such belief are shown to be in error. Keep thinking things through.